Welcome to On DoD on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jared Serbu. Thanks very much for joining us. And on today's program, it's going to be the first of what's probably going to end up being several discussions on what I think is going to be a huge topic of defense reform over the next year or more. It's the Defense Department's Planning, Programming, Budgeting, and Execution System, or PPBE. It's been around for decades now, and it's got a couple things going for it, at least. It is at least well understood throughout DOD at this point, and, and PPBE is orderly. But it's also really, really ponderous. It is not flexible, and and it really gives the department very little ability to pivot and spend money in new areas when new new needs arise. It's pretty well agreed upon amongst the people who study DOD processes at this point that it's time to reform the PPBE system. Congress has chartered a commission to examine exactly how to do that. And meanwhile, there's another outside group of experts working in parallel under the auspices of the American Society of Military Comptrollers. This week, we're going to talk to several members of ASMC's PPBE Reform Task Force. With us this week are three of the members. Michael Conlon, former DOD Chief Data Officer, is the chairman of the task force. Also with us, George Kovach, former DOD Deputy Comptroller, and Cameron Holt, recently retired Air Force Major General. He most recently served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for contracting. Also with us today is Rich Brady, the CEO of the American Society of Military Comptrollers. Thank you all for being here. And Rich, I think I'd like to start with you just to kind of set the table with what we're here talking about today and what we're going to be paying a lot of attention to over the next year and change. A lot of our listeners are from outside the DOD world, so probably will not have ever even encountered the acronym PPBE. Can you just give us a quick primer on on what it is, where it came from, how it operates within the Defense Department? Yes, uh, absolutely, Jared. Thank you. Uh, your PPBE, the Planning, Programming, Budgeting, and Execution Process or System, is the resource allocation process that the Department of Defense uses uh, to allocate resources and execute those funds uh, on an annual basis. Uh, it works in tandem with uh, two other processes, uh, the Acquisition Management System or the, the Procurement Process, as well as the requirements generation system, uh, the system that determines what uh, military requirements and capabilities are necessary. The PPBS system was brought into DOD by uh, Secretary McNamara in 1961. The background, its background is in systems approach to management, which many companies were using at that time. And the intent was to align strategic objectives with resource allocation. That's where you get the planning on the front end all the way to the execution on the back end through programming and budgeting uh, in that uh, final process. The the system itself, PPBE, has largely uh, remained unchanged uh, throughout the time. It has evolved somewhat, but essential elements uh, of it still remain. Uh, that very sequential uh, nature, linear nature of moving from a plan to the program to the budget, and then finally executing uh, those funds. Um, But over time, the environment in which this system operates has changed. Um, And we're seeing uh, that uh, there are certain weaknesses in the current 
program uh, or process that need to be addressed. Uh, you know, some of those that have been brought up is uh, it is not uh, necessarily a timely system. So you start planning and programming two to three years out from when you're actually going to execute those funds. And as you know, a lot can happen uh, in a, a geopolitical environment, geostrategic environment in those two to three years from when you put a plan together to when you actually execute. In some respects, it's no longer strategically aligned, um, the, the system itself, uh, because of the very interests amongst the services, uh, OSD staff, the combatant commands. It has to go through the Office of Management and Budget uh, before it even goes over to Congress. And, and again, you have a lot of different uh, incentives uh, and uh, outcomes required by each of those groups that uh, are involved in the process. It is not necessarily timely. Uh, again, uh, when we want to, if you're wanting to be agile, uh, if you want to to insert uh, new technologies into your systems in a timely manner, the system PPPE uh, process system does not necessarily fully support that. And finally, it's uh, it's not uh, inherently transparent uh, either. You know, a lot of takes place within the uh, the Department of Defense before uh, what happens what uh, decisions were made come come to light uh, and that reduces the amount of time that people can make uh, then decisions on them at, at higher levels so in the end i think that uh, the the process at this stage uh, while it's been very useful to uh, the department of defense and and the department needs a process for resource allocation uh, we've reached the point where the marginal cost uh, far exceeds the marginal benefit when you look at the what changes from year to year in the budget it's a very small amount uh, annually and, and much of it is is set in law or fully established uh, within the, the programs and cannot be changed and, and so uh, because of these various issues uh, we really need to look again holistically at the program and identify uh, areas, opportunities for for improvement. And we mentioned that this was a creature of the early 60s. I mean, if, if you looked at a, a large company in that era, an IBM, a Ford Motor Company, would you have seen a similar setup, a similar system? Is it just that the rest of the world has moved on and DOD hasn't? Yeah, this is rich. Yes, uh, you would have seen at that time. Uh, but again, uh, today, uh, many companies are moving to you know a flexible flexible budgeting process or a more responsive budgeting process that allows them to take advantage uh, to the changes, quickly changing technology and environment, and inserting that into their their programs or their product offerings much more quickly. Now, at the same time, it's important to keep in mind that you know no private company out there or publicly traded company uh, approaches the size of the Department of Defense. So, sure. the, so the Department of Defense's problem set is is somewhat unique, uh, but that doesn't mean that it cannot uh, be improved to be more responsive, to be more agile, um, uh, to be more supportive of bringing in uh, military capabilities quicker. And Michael, it looked like you wanted to add on to what Rich was saying. Absolutely. Uh, the, the challenge here is not just modernizing PBB alone, because there are these adjacent activities that are part and parcel of how the department operates. There's requirements, there's acquisition, there's contracting, there's logistics and supply chain. All of these things, as Rich pointed out, are built for repetition and predictability. And 95% of what the DOD purchases every single year is exactly the same as it was the prior year. That's a calculated percentage, not an estimate. I told you I was the first chief data officer at the DOD. And we actually were able to calculate that percentage. So it's highly predictable. And we're in an unpredictable world against unpredictable competitors. Uh, and so that kind of predictability and the broader system beyond PPPE is part of the bigger challenge that we need to address as we think about 
modernizing PPPE itself. General Holt, let me let me come to you next on on sort of the the real world impacts of this because you lived it every day as a senior acquisition official in the Department of Defense. Is it is it kind of fair to say that PPPE reform is still kind of the big unsolved piece of acquisition reform? Yeah, Jared, thanks, and and I would say it is the the single big issue uh, that it requires reform. Um, as we face the challenge that we face, and I would say threat from uh, China that we face, that's much more economic and information in its, its design, that sophistication of the threat we are not matching, particularly in the way that we resource national security. The result is that they become much faster than we are uh, in the acquisition process. Uh, and the purchasing power parity is uh, really upside down in their favor. Uh, and so we really have to come to grips with this as if we were on a wartime posture. Uh, even more so than ACK reform, I sat on the a Section 809 panel as a, as a voting um, advisor to it, uh, and we delivered the Volume 3 report to Congress. And one of the things that was recommended in that uh, Section 809 panel report was that we move towards something called a program um, acquisition executive instead of a program executive office officer the way it is today. And as a really key part of that, the proposition was that we broaden up, instead of micromanaging every dollar and associating uh, those dollars with the name of the program on it, a lot of people don't know how much Congress actually micromanages it. And I don't mean that in a disparaging way, uh, but over time, there's been more and more controls placed on the budget to the point where the name of the program and the phase of each program is on the statute when it comes out. And so from Congress on down, that creates an enormous degree of perverse incentives. Uh, and the oversight of Congress has not been modernized over time. And so the incentive winds up being to spend all the money as fast as you can within those narrowly defined phases of each program and on that program. What it's left us with, frankly, is a situation in acquisition where a PEO cannot legally optimize the spend within their portfolio. So if a PEO has a portfolio of programs that are fighter bombers or uh, special operations and ISR, they cannot legally optimize the spend during execution year without the notification and prior permission of Congress. So we've come to the place where the way that the United States resources national security is actually more centrally planned uh, and overseen than, than it is in the Chinese uh, Communist Party, which is ironic and it's a little alarming to say it that way, but it's actually the truth. The other damaging part of that lack of flexibility in execution year is the technology now moves so much faster than the PPBE process was designed to handle. China can take advantage of that because they don't micromanage the funds nearly as much, and they can move money in our own markets, even in our commercial technology markets, within 20 minutes where we would have to know two years in advance which technologies we want to fund uh, and, and then explain that to Congress. So oftentimes there's so much of the money is, is spoken for in terms of what program and what phase of program it can be spent on that if an emerging technology comes up in execution year, no one in the Department of Defense can actually say yes to it. 
uh, until we actually uh, move the money in that direction. And that takes far too long. So the result is, for example, in the space of time that the F-35 went from initial flight to initial operational capability, the Chinese were able to actually make five major upgrades to the J-20 in that same space of time. And many commercial technologists where in the technology markets they operate in, the key to sustain profitability over time is speed to market, not IP vendor lock. Whereas in the defense market side, uh, many of our companies rely on that IP vendor lock uh, to keep programs around for decades and decades uh, where they can make the most money back. And so it, it puts our business model in, in direct conflict with the imperative of the national defense strategy, which is to start moving faster than our adversary could move or could ever keep up with. So I think there's a lot of room for reform, but I think Congress could, uh, should not and cannot exempt itself from change if we are to be competitive with the Chinese. George, I want to get you in here too. And, and I think this is maybe actually a good point to step back a little bit and make sure that we're, we're scoping the problem in a way that makes sense to people. I want you to correct me on this, but is it, is it right to think of this as almost two parallel problems? I mean, one being the PPPE process itself, which as far as I know is not established in statute and DOD could technically change tomorrow if they wanted to. And then a congressional appropriations process micromanaged, as General Holt said, that's kind of conformed around that outdated process. Is that a good way to think about it? Or am I, are they more closely related than I'm even describing there? So thanks, Jared. This is George. And yeah, I I think you're completely right. And and we have talked about this amongst, I know, in the commission and on the task force that, you know, you could streamline the PPBE process, the entire process down to one month. And if you don't get an appropriation from Congress, it doesn't do you any good. You know, we always start every fiscal year and we are right now, we're in fiscal year uh, 23, we're almost into November and we don't have the 23 budget yet. So we always get the budget late. Um, and then you have typically nine to 10 months to spend your 12 months worth of money. It takes a while to get things uh, going. And so you've got a short amount of time to spend a lot of money and to Cameron's point there, then it just, it creates bad behavior. And I know that amongst the commission, amongst ourselves, amongst everybody, uh, there is, the, the goal is to try to change the behavior so that the metrics are, are, are more appropriate. Because right now the main metric is you gotta spend all the money before September 30th. And sometimes you don't get that money until March. So you're really rushing to do it and then as uh, Michael was, was mentioning too before, much of the budget is just repurchasing what we have done in, uh, in the previous year. So there's not a lot of room in there to uh, do any sort of reprioritization, which the main mechanism that we have to do that is the omnibus reprogramming, which usually is around the June, July timeframe. So that's the only opportunity that we have to update our budget uh, based on how <clears throat> geopolitical and innovation has changed since we submitted the budget two years ago because everything has changed. We need something different. We just got our budget, say, in February, March timeframe, and we immediately have to move to a massive reprogramming effort that goes up to the Hill that will get approved sometime in the, in the July timeframe before they break for August. And now we've got 
August and September to jam through and spend all the money that we have. So, so there is a, a major focus to see what can we do to, uh, to change uh, behavior. And I, I had no boss one time who I thought was, was great that the, uh, the processes and the systems that we have in the government are such that it takes exceptional people to do average work. Um, and I think that that really kind of rings true because everybody, you know, in the Department of Defense at OMB, on the Hill and Congress, I mean, everybody is committed to the defense of the country and doing the right thing, but we have just created this process that makes it very, very hard to uh, succeed. So I, I think a lot of what Cameron talks about, if we could change some of those metrics so that the goal is not to spend as much money as possible by the end of the year, but actually to make sure that you are focused on the mission and accomplishing the mission. And there've been lots of discussions about, could we, could we keep some of that money longer or maybe not even spend all the money and just say, I'm not gonna be able to spend it all this year, but look, this is going to this weapon system, which everyone agrees is critical. So if you give me an extra month, an extra two months or whatever, I promise I will spend it on that weapon system rather than just uh, throwing it away on some kind of needless execution. That's George Kovach, a former DOD deputy comptroller and one of the members of ASMC's PPBE reform task force. Also talking this week with Michael Conlon, the chairman of the task force, and Cameron Holt, another member of the task force and a recently retired deputy assistant secretary of the Air Force for contracting. Rich Brady, the CEO of the American Society of Military Comptrollers, is also with us. They're all with us after a quick break, and we'll talk more about PPBE reform. This is Federal News Network. You're listening to On DoD. I'm Jared Serby. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. And again, we're talking this week with several members of the American Society of Military Comptrollers PPBE Reform Task Force. Michael Conlin, George Kovach, and Cameron Holt about some of the things Congress and DOD can do to reform the PPBE system, make it more flexible, more agile. Um, I, I want to come back to the congressional side for sure, but but on the on the process side, which the department has more... I guess, theoretical control over anyway. You know, I, I've, I've never heard anyone in the department speak positively of PPBE. Why are we stuck with a 60, 70-year-old system? What would have been the biggest impediments to change? Yeah, so I'll start. Um, there's an enormous amount of inertia that's created, uh, especially when you use the same process that is calendar-driven since 1961. And because that process involves so much energy and so much manpower um, from the lowest base all the way up through the Pentagon, you're literally working on three budgets at a time uh, all year long. And so it becomes a tyranny of the urgent. You're in a calendar-based system where if you uh, decided to pause for a second and decide, hey, let's not do it this way this year, you're already behind the power curve on what the process is. So the process uh, demands uh, that, that uh, everybody line up behind certain dates. And so that inertia that's created prevents folks from doing anything different because there's no time to do anything different or even propose that it be done differently. Um, so I, I would offer there's an inertia there. I also would tell you that it's not wholly uh, DOD's process. So for example, 
if the DOD uh, or any one of the services decided to do as I was suggesting is necessary, which is to greatly reduce the number of individual accounts or program elements uh, that the Congress appropriates, Congress uh, can decide whether they would accept that or not. Uh, and specifically, the four oversight committees of Congress need to be uh, need to accept that. Uh, and frankly, we actually see the opposite direction to be true, where they want more direct control from statute all the way down, uh, not less. And so those kinds of ideas, I think, need to be challenged. Certainly, uh, we want Congress um, and their oversight to be strong. That is their constitutional authority, their responsibility. And we need to make sure that whatever changes we make, Congress still does have that oversight intact, that power intact, but we must modernize it and reduce the amount of effort uh, and the tyranny of the urgent and allow for more flexibility. Uh, if, if I may, also, I want to highlight a couple of points that George made. Sure. Um, there's two sources of waste and abuse. You know, oftentimes we hear a congressman uh, rightfully concerned about the fraud, waste, and abuse that they might see within the DOD spend uh, or, or in, in the DOD practices. But I would offer to you that I've spent 32 years in the contracting and acquisition business, and there are two sources of waste and abuse that far eclipse any other waste and abuse that I have seen in my 32 years. And one is the expiration of dollars uh, every year and how we uh, do that. The fact that we would have in, um, at the end of the year now in law, not just one end of fiscal year, but in effect two. Uh, in, at the end of July, we have to meet certain uh, obligation rates. Uh, and then again, at the end of September, we have to be completely obligated for you know, the different colors of money that we might have. That creates an enormous amount of wasteful spending that if there were an incentive to actually save money and that incentive allowed the DOD to put money into a separate account as if it's obligated, but then have a certain period of time, maybe even up to a year to reinvest that money uh, in things that make uh, a lot of sense to be reinvesting it in. Um, I think you would see a dramatic drop in the wasteful spending. Uh, in addition to that, the CR that happens to us almost every year now, the continuing resolution, many in Congress actually celebrate it when we get to a continuing resolution. Uh, the irony of that is that there is nothing that I can think of that creates more waste and delays combat capability to the warfighter in a greater way than the continuing resolution. And the reason is it causes a ripple all the way down. So no new projects can be started. Nothing that was planned to start in that uh, budget year can, can be commenced in any weapon system out there. And only a percentage of the spend from last year is actually allowed to be executed. So all of the program plans have to be intentionally slowed down that is something that our adversary uh, in China would love to be able to do. And in fact, our own Congress uh, is doing that to us every year in the continuing resolution process. Uh, in the contracts, we actually have to create the flexibility to cut things off 
prematurely because of the continuing resolution process or the threat of a government shutdown. When you do that contractually, the flexibility that you gain actually costs you an enormous amount more in risk that the contractors have to place on those dollars. And as far as the schedule of programs go, because you have to delay certain activities, it's not a one-for-one -one slip oftentimes. Oftentimes, if you have to slip a schedule by a year because of ongoing continuing resolutions, the actual slip that occurs could be five years. It could be exaggerated uh, greatly based upon the program schedule. Um, but you still have to keep that standing army of contractors working. And so the increase in schedule and the increase in cost is devastating. Yeah. And so that's, that's just something more to bring to light. Let, let me give ahead, a Michael. quick specific example of that. Um, when I was in the department, uh, uh, Secretary Esper uh, directed us to conduct the, the defense-wide review, and we were able to identify $5 billion of spend that could be moved from less important programs to more important programs um, for higher uh, lethality and readiness, $5 billion. And then the budget was delayed with a continuing resolution. And by the time we got the real budget, the entire $5 billion worth of savings had been lost uh, and was no longer available to be redirected for, for improved combat readiness of the department, simply because of that short delay from that one continuing resolution. So, and it happens as George and Cameron have both said, it happens 80% of the time that the budget is not delivered on time at the start of the fiscal year. So you routinely see that waste over and over again. That's Michael Conlon, former DOD Chief Data Officer and Chairman of the American Society of Military Comptrollers PPBE Reform Task Force. Also talking with Task Force members George Kovach and Cameron Holt and Rich Brady, the CEO of the American Society of Military Comptrollers. They're all back with us after another short break on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Servan. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. Talking this week with members of the American Society of Military Comptrollers PPBE Reform Task Force, Michael Conlon, George Kovach, and Cameron Holt. Also, Rich Brady, the CEO of ASMC. And, and before the break, we were talking a bit about why we're still stuck with this system that's been around for so many decades, why it has been so hard to reform, even though theoretically DOD could make a lot of changes on its own. Michael, before the break, we were talking a bit more about the practical effects that the sort of inflexible PPBE system has, and, and as do continuing resolutions. Michael, l let me stick with you. One of the you know, most common complaints that we hear from currently serving DOD leaders is the PPBE process causes you to have to plan for what you're going to buy two years out from when you actually execute the funds. It seems to me that's especially harmful in the area of information technology, anything that's going to use any sort of modern data practices that you were very involved in when you were in the department. Talk a bit about how, how this impedes especially modern technology. Right, so, so let's start from, the, from a simple example. Earlier, Cameron referenced the F-35. The F-35 is a beautiful piece of hardware, and it's a beautiful piece of software with 25 million lines of code just to fly the plane. That's not targeting, that's not weapons, that's not combat, that's just flying the plane, 25 million lines of code. Now, 
in a modern world, I can push new code into production in an hour or less. Um, but when I need to get approval to develop that code two years in advance, <laughs> I now cannot change the performance parameters of the most exquisite jet fighter on the planet in, in less than two and a half or three years. Uh, and in many parts of the world of data, with machine learning and AI, we see a rapid pace of change. Look, the half-life of the leading edge AI algorithms today is around six months, meaning that in 12 months, if you're not using the next algorithm, you're behind on the performance curve, you're behind your competitors on the performance curve, which is not where we want DOD weapons platforms to be. We want to be behind the performance curve of people like China and Russia. Um, so we need processes starting from the budget all the way through the software management that let us rapidly innovate and rapidly change, put new functionality into production. Because if, if, if I budget for two years from now, those algorithms will have turned over um, at least five times before I can start spending on them to test them out and, uh, and, and prove them before I put them in production. Um, and that's just in the world of, of AI image recognition, for example. There's a lot of other spaces where we see the same rapid pace of change, six to nine month half-life. And uh, as Cameron pointed out, we just fall further and further behind the performance profile of our competitors because of the impedance of the PPPE process. And I think aside from just the time issue, you run into the problem of trying to figure out whether your software development program or your AI algorithm is RDT and E money, procurement money, or O&M oh, yes. money. Um, yes. Uh, yes. Is the and colors of money thing got to go away completely for everything or just software? Or I, I think it's got to go away for software because the modern software disciplines mean that you are continually evolving your software throughout its life cycle. The day you stop maintaining and evolving your software is the day it ceases to be an asset and becomes a liability. Um, so colors of money has to go away for these evolving assets like software, AI algorithms, and especially all of the data associated with it. Now there are enduring assets that don't evolve the way software does. On those enduring assets, colors of money might, make, might continue to make the same kind of sense it has made throughout the life of the PV process. Um, but it definitely colors of money just doesn't map the modern dynamics of software management uh, because of that rapid continuous evolution. George, I know you're trying to get in. Go ahead. Yeah, this is George. One, one question on that. So we actually, on a positive note, we did make some progress when I was at DOD as the, as the deputy comptroller. And I think it was either 21 budget. We actually did get approval from Congress to have a software color of money to, to address exactly what we're talking about here, because we did buy software the same way we bought an aircraft carrier. We started with our DNT, our DT&E money, we moved to procurement money, we moved to O&M money, and obviously, as Michael just clearly described, that's software moves much more rapidly than that. But we did actually get approval from the appropriators to have a software color of money so you could take it through all those phases much more quickly. And that actually was quite a huge breakthrough because as we've discussed quite a bit, um, Congress really likes, takes their oversight role very seriously. And they're not usually a fan of giving you a, uh, a large sum of money and just say, you know, trust us, we will, uh, we will spend it wisely. So that was, um, that was some pretty good progress there. 
Second point I was going to make, and I think Cameron touched on it as well, is I think we do have a lot of progress to make on the requirements side of things. I think we overly complicate the requirements side because there's nobody who knows exactly what's going to happen two years from now. And so we get way into the nitnoids of what we need in the requirements process. And then that changes, technology changes, and the geopolitical situation changes two years from now. You know, I mean, you don't go in two years from now saying, I want to buy an iPhone 7. And then two years later, Congress approves it for the iPhone 7 and they're on to whatever, 15 or something. So, you know, we need to be much more general with the requirements. You know, I need some sort of unclassified handheld communication thing to talk to everyone in my team. Got it. Give me some money for that. And then when you get the money, go out and buy whatever is the latest. Well, well, we made those changes around color of money for software. Well, Congress made the changes around color of money of software. It certainly has uh, not um, revolutionized the way we do the PPPE work for a lot of the uh, $49 billion a year spent on IT. A lot of that's still done the same old way as though the colors of money still apply. And, and so there's follow through that's necessary to modernize the supporting software systems for PPPE so that we can apply that additional permission that was made available. Um, that's still behind the curve. Rich, you were trying so to get in. So if I could offer um, some really disruptive thinking here. So, you know, we the comments that are being made here surrounding the, the example of software and requirements are really valid points. But, you know, even those comments are working from our current assumption of the PPBE process and the fact that the oversight of it should relate to colors of money mm -hmm. at all and the spending of it. How fast can you spend it? How much can you spend it on? But let's let's take those examples. So software, if you were just to unleash and give some flexibility in software, as we talked about, Congress did. But what did you do? You just created another color of money. Uh, we didn't need another color of money. I lost the argument as that uh, was coming up through the building. And what I was arguing for is say that you can use any color of money for software. Don't create another color of money that gets micromanaged from the statute all the way down. And when you think about that in technological capability, is the object for us to spend all the money? Is that really what we're doing in the DOD? Or is the object to produce combat power and as much combat power as we possibly can within the resources the taxpayer gave us to do it? Green money, not colors of money. So in the example of software versus hardware, oftentimes when we do the systems engineering process, you want to push the decision of what functionality to deliver via hardware versus via software to the very end of the process where you know what the optimal choice might be between software delivered functionality versus hardware defined functionality. If your colors of money determine three, four years prior <laughs> limits your hand in that uh, technical decision, you're limiting combat power for an artificial reason that has nothing at all to do with the um, optimizing that decision at the time. And then with respect to requirements, we do this to ourselves all the time. We overspec requirements and we get these young, fantastic young majors and lieutenant colonels 
that are brilliant folks writing these detailed requirements that go up before the process years before the actual acquisition program begins. And by the time they finish writing it, it is probably 10 years old compared to what the commercial industry is now capable of doing. So we continually pull technology from industry by over-defining the specs. And then the, the industry players who are used to being in defense and love those barriers to entry, in a lot of cases, they're incentivized to say, look, don't correct the government. Just deliver what they told you to deliver. Don't tell them there's a better way to do it. We'll work that after contract award and get paid new money to modernize it later. That is a bad incentive. And so we need to, um, I'm not suggesting we do away with the technology pull process entirely uh, because they have to be based on capability gaps to some extent. But what I am saying is that requirements should be thought of in terms of overall concept of operations, not one platform at a time. Rich, I promise I'm coming to you next, but just one quick follow-up on, on something General Holt just said a few minutes ago on, on the um, colorless money pilot. Because you're right, they created a whole new budget activity just, just to do this thing. Is that is that partly the explanation for why it's been kind of sparsely used? I think there's still only like a dozen programs in there. I think the Air Force has zero programs in there. Is is Does that help explain that? I think it does. I, I think, I, you know, if you were to look at a software coder, how can you tell whether they're doing software development, software production, or software sustainment? Well, the answer is you can't because it's the same thing. You know, and again, between hardware and software, I think you just got to take the color of money all the way off of software and just say you can use any color of money for software. Rich, please. I know you've been dying to get in. Yeah, no, uh, I think we've been talking around uh, two of the really the fundamental uh, issues or tensions uh, in the PPBE process. Uh, and you pointed out earlier, there's really kind of two systems we're talking about here. One that's within the Department of Defense and certainly within its purview to change at any time it wanted. And the second is that uh, interchange between uh, the Congress and the Department of Defense. Um, and, and in some respects, you could say that Congress's role in this is really to one, uh, authorize and appropriate funds, and two, to determine the form and content of the budget request that comes to them. Uh, but the real fundamental tension here is one on control. You know, how do we, how do, how does Congress maintain their control of appropriations and government spending uh, while also giving the Department of Defense the flexibility they need uh, to execute the funds? And on the department side, how does the Department of Defense provide transparency to Congress to uh, to show them or to show you know good stewardship of funds and that the, they are executing with the intent of the Congress while also uh, uh, allowing for some sense of congressional oversight. When we look at what the Legislative Commission is doing and even our own PPE, PPBE reform task force, I think, uh, you know, identifying solutions that address those two key issues, control, congressional control, and uh, Department of Defense transparency uh, are going to be the, the two areas that would add the most benefit uh, at this time. Because again, what happens within the Department of Defense, uh, you know, within the process itself, how they determine uh, do, do, you know, the, the, the programs they want to buy, uh, how they want to execute their funds, a lot of that is, is internal and they could change those uh, policies processes tomorrow if they wanted to. But resolving this tension uh, between uh, the legislative branch and uh, the executive branch, and specifically the Department of Defense, are going to be key to any reform efforts. 
That's Rich Brady, the CEO of the American Society of Military Comptrollers, also talking with three members of ASMC's PPBE Reform Task Force, Michael Conlon, George Kovach, and Cameron Holt. They're all back with us after another quick break on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu. This is on DOD. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. We are talking about potential reforms to DOD's planning, programming, budgeting, and execution system with members of the American Society of Military Comptrollers PPBE Reform Task Force. A few more minutes left here with Michael Conlin, former DOD Chief Data Officer, George Kovach, former DOD Deputy Comptroller, Cameron Holt, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Contracting, and Rich Brady, the CEO of the American Society of Military Comptrollers. And I'd love to hear somebody weigh in on on how you maintain a degree of transparency while making the money more fungible. I mean, General Holt talked about, you know, we need to have fewer discreetly defined program elements in the budget submission every year. But people like me tend to like that kind of thing because it tells you a lot more detail about where the money is going to end up going and what, what the plans really are. So so presumably you can do this in a way that that still gives Congress oversight, still gives the public a sense of how money's being spent. What what is what does a better system look like in that respect? Yeah, so I'll offer you some some uh, thoughts there's obviously lots of ideas that could that that could um, come in this regard, and I think, and frankly, I think Congress ought to be part of that process of what are those ideas that that they believe would be responsive to their own uh, mandate of supporting their constituents. Uh, but just to offer um, one perspective on that, I think a really really good analogy is the analogy of how Wall Street oversees publicly traded corporations. A CEO cannot just, um, uh, I mean, they can move money wherever they choose to move money, but every quarter they have to come back and brief Wall Street analysts on how they've deployed their capital. And if they have incentivized their lower level managers to save money and generate what, what they would call free cash flow, that free cash flow comes back up to the executive in the company and they decide how to deploy that money. It's either a dividend or a share buyback or merger and acquisition, um, or uh, at the end of the rung somewhere, a capital expenditure that, um, that actually improves or automates some uh, system in the future. Uh, and then how they define how they've deployed that capital that Wall Street analyst walks out of the room and turns to a bunch of institutional investors and says, buy, sell, or hold. That is very effective oversight, but it did not constrain the decision-making of the CEO in real time. If we were to move that analogy into the government space and say, how could we learn from the private sector ability to move so fast uh, and move to speed to market as the essential element which is definitely what's needed on the defense technology side. Uh, The four oversight committees of Congress could in effect be like that Wall Street oversight. And instead of once a year getting um, briefings from a program executive officer or the Pentagon on where are we in the funding, where what have we done since the last year, uh, maybe that activity happens even more frequently, but is not 
uh, fashioned in a way that says the measure of merit is just to spend all the money as rapidly as possible in those narrow stovepipes we've defined, uh, but rather to say, hey, uh, general or, or senior executive, how have you used the resources given to your entire portfolio to maximize uh, the combat capability delivered? So don't talk to me about whether I was able to spend all that money within that account and generate no combat capability from it, but still get the measure of merit uh, that Congress is overseeing. Instead, it becomes about how did you deliver on your promise and your projection? And frankly, if they're failing uh, to deliver on that, uh, there are remedies and a number of them that Congress would have that I would argue are every bit as effective and even more so as if they looked at prior notification above threshold reprogramming actions or the height of stupidity, in my view, these omnibus reprogramming bills that happen every year at enormous effort. Um, but the omnibus reprogramming acts should be absolute confirmation of proof that we wasted our time in the original PPBE process uh, and that we are behind the, the eight ball in terms of responsiveness and accuracy. George, did you want to weigh in one last time on this? Uh, yes, thank you very much, Jared. Um, I mean, I think the thing we're talking about is, you know, how do you change behavior? How do you do this? And if you really want to change culture, change behavior, I think two things which Rich touched on was uh, transparency and then communication. And so I think there's a lot that can be done on the system side, on scenario-based budgeting that can help with the transparency. And then there's a lot that can be done just with the relationship and building the trust between the Department of Defense uh, and the appropriators. And then through transparency and communication, you may make some, some progress. And, uh, and, and back to the, the point, you know, talk about software color money, I'm gonna say touche to the general there because, you know, I, I think he's 100% right. I mean, we were very happy, you know, myself having worked on the appropriations committee, getting them to agree to something a little bit different was it was a major win, you know? I mean, that was a that was a first down. But as the general said at the beginning, uh, I mean, we're in a war with, against China, and we need to do more than just getting first downs. I mean, we really need to be throwing some hail marys at this point. So, uh, so there's a lot more effort that we could be could be doing. The, the good news is, like I said before, we have a lot of good people who really care about this and want to make the changes. So, uh, hopefully, we will be successful. And, and Jared, if I may, I'd like to reinforce both George's point and Cameron's point. The thing that enables a modern uh, Fortune 100 CEO to do what Cameron just said is the fact that the CFO has state-of-the-art IT systems for budgeting and financial management. They operate, those systems include state-of-the-art uh, benchmark process models that are known for their accuracy, efficiency, and effectiveness, and above all known for the high quality of data that flows through those systems so that both the CFO and the CEO can have absolute confidence in the insights that that data reveals and in the decisions they make based on that data. And that's not what we see broadly in the financial management and PPPE systems of the Department of Defense. There's 65-year-old code in some of those systems. It's just not uh, fit for purpose any longer. And if we don't modernize those systems, it'll be very difficult to produce the quality of data we need to achieve the kind of scenario that Cameron was describing. 
All right, one last question here. And my, my takeaway from this whole conversation is this seems really hard, like harder than acquisition reform, hard, um, especially given all the inertia that, that General Holt talked about earlier. I guess this explains why we need two different commissions to look at this. But but give me some hope that, that some of this can be solved. Why, why do we think that there are potentially executable answers here? Yeah, well, I'll start. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, you know, when we're talking about the problems, it sometimes can seem hopeless. Um, But frankly, I will tell you that when in this fight with China, our system of, of, of capitalism and the profit motivation is so much better and could be so much faster than they could ever keep up with. I am convinced of that even though we are so far behind right now. The question is, can we get out of our own way? And I would really hope that as we go forward into this season, there seems to be a lot of coalescing around this as the problem. And I would just hope though, that as we look at this, we really do consider this in a wartime kind of mentality and not just in a process reform mentality. Uh, because we need to make deeper reforms than anyone would be comfortable with. And frankly, it's going to be hard to implement because of that inertia and that tyranny of the calendar that I mentioned. And I, I really am hoping that Congress has the maturity to even look at its own role and offer that there could there, there may be changes that are necessary for, for uh, Congress to make to how it operates. Uh, and I really believe that if they do take that on in that way, in a wartime mentality, uh, that we can align the incentives, uh, the profit motivation of, indus- of industry versus the national security needs of the department. And if we can achieve that alignment, I am convinced we can blow the doors off of uh, the Chinese Communist Party in the way they're doing things right now. So I think there's hope out there. And I'm very excited about the fact that there is a, a multiplicity of ideas now flying around on the central uh, reform focus. Yeah, Jared, uh, I am optimistic as well, but I'm also a realist. Uh, you know, when you look at a system that's been entrenched for uh, over 60 years now, it is going to be very difficult to dislodge uh, that incentive structure that's been built up over time. And, and as Cameron has pointed out, the inertia that's been built up behind it. Uh, I am increasingly looking at this effort as not uh, something that's going to be resolved in the, with this initial commission's work uh, or in the next year and a half to two years. If you look historically at uh, what it took to bring Goldwater's Nichols about, uh, you know, a seven to 10 year effort, really a generational effort to make change. That's what we're approaching. It's what we have to be prepared for. But it all starts with, uh, you know, making these first initial steps and identifying uh, those critical elements, those levers that we can pull that will have the most impact early on and continue to work changes of the process over time. Uh, So I'm optimistic, uh, but we have to be in this uh, for the long haul. That is Rich Brady, the CEO of the American Society of Military Comptrollers. We've also been talking this week with Michael Conlon, former DOD Chief Data Officer, George Kovach, former DOD Deputy Comptroller, and Cameron Holt, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Contracting. They are all members of the American Society of Military Comptrollers PPBE Reform Task Force. If you missed any of this discussion, we will post the full conversation, as always, at federalnewsnetwork.com. You can also listen to us in podcast form. Just subscribe to On DoD wherever you get your shows. Thanks again for tuning in. I'm Jared Serbu. This is On DoD. So long.
You've been listening to On DOD on Federal News Network. Tune in Wednesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. 